Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Center Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Language and Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Caitlin Nugaritz, Anthropologist of Religion and a PhD candidate in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies at UC Santa Barbara, to discuss the global appeal of Shinto in the digital era. Caitlin introduces us to online Shinto communities as old as the internet itself, as well as the many international phases of Shinto, from official shrines in the USA to localized rituals and Marie Kondo's own brand of spiritualism. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good morning, Caitlin. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on the show. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Sure. So I'm an expert on Japanese religions, particularly contemporary Shinto, the way of the kami, uh, digital technology and media. So my primary methodology is digital anthropology. I'm very interested in what we can learn about people's religious lives through social media and other forms of popular media. My dissertation research focuses on the globalization of Shinto and the growth of the online Shinto communities on social media. So that's what I'm studying right now. I didn't set out to be (laughs) an anthropologist of, of Japanese religion or Japanese anything, but it's one of those situations where if you look back, you can see the breadcrumbs that led you to that point. So I grew up in the 90s as a a preacher's kid. My father is a Protestant minister. So we would go to church on Sundays and we would watch anime, Japanese animated television shows on Saturdays. So growing up in a church, helping out with the behind the scenes, I had really no interest from a young age in studying religion because it kind of felt like my day job. When I talk to people who know more about Shinto than maybe Christianity, I liken it to being a miko, a shrine maiden. You know, I help out with general tasks, make sure that all the services run smoothly. That's just kind of how it goes when you're a preacher's kid. So I started Asian studies um, in high school, actually. I I got a scholarship to go to boarding school specifically because I wanted to uh, study Chinese. My maternal grandfather came from China. He died at a, a young age. Um, when my mother was young. So I always wanted to know more about that side of my family because it felt like a branch of my family tree, so to speak, had been cut off. So I started studying Chinese in high school. I went into college as an East Asian studies uh, major. I was thinking about international service, maybe joining the foreign service in the State Department in the United States. And so during my Chinese studies, I was specifically studying Han Dynasty orthography, which is the study of uh, writing systems and gender. So again, (laughs) uh, even in my undergrad days, it didn't seem like Japanese studies fit into my vision of the future. And at that point, uh, especially during the presidency of Donald Trump, the Foreign Service was not looking like a good option. And in fact, when I graduated, it was not an option. So when I was an undergraduate student, I started taking graduate classes. And that's when I took a class on politics of Shinto with Dr. Julian Thomas at the University of Pennsylvania. And that just totally changed my world. I fell in love with the class. Dr. Thomas is a phenomenal teacher. And We spent a whole semester just thinking about the question, what is Shinto? Having grown up watching anime with my dad, I was a big Studio Ghibli fan. Uh, We watched all sorts of shows, but that one always stuck in my mind. Um, Very similar to other Japanese studies folks, as I am finding out. And so I did want to know, well, what is Shinto? Because I associated it with the shows that I had been watching. There were some elements that seemed interesting and strange to me. And the more that we kind of unraveled this question of what is Shinto, the more I saw how complicated it was. And it was such an interesting puzzle that I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And so at that point, I actually started uh, studying Japanese alongside Chinese. And I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a bachelor's and a master's in both Chinese and Japanese studies. 
your audience may or may not be aware that Shinto studies is a very small field. And I can say that Han Dynasty orthography is also a very small field. So when I was thinking about going into a PhD program, I wanted to have the most options available to me because there were only maybe two or three advisors that I could uh, think of working with on either side. So I just decided to let the PhD market kind of make the decision for me. I was really torn in which direction to continue my studies. And it turned out that I had the most interest in my Shinto studies project. And so that's kind of the roundabout route that I took to studying uh, Japanese religion. Although even at that point, I wasn't thinking about digital media so much as I was looking at um, uh, Kokugaku uh, scholarship, this nativist scholarship from the late uh, 18th and then early 19th centuries, and how they were reinventing this idea of, of Shinto at the early stage of the uh, Japanese modern state. However, <laughs> I am a big fan of technology in general. I'm always looking for like the next best app, playing the newest video game. And so during my studies, I stumbled upon these communities online that were also interested in Shinto and had very similar backgrounds to myself, except for the fact that they had decided to start practicing Shinto and I had not done that. So I became very interested in these communities. I, I, I lurked for a while. This is a technical term for um, digital media studies on the internet. I just kind of hung out. I didn't really say anything in the communities. I just listened to people's stories and their questions. And that became fascinating to me as well. So I ended up combining my love for Japanese popular culture, my own experiences and expertise in lived religion, and then my own you know, interest in technology into what is now my current research topic, which is the globalization of Shinto online. Great. Can I ask if you're a practitioner of Shinto? Or? Oh, you can't ask. No, I'm not a practitioner of Shinto. Okay. Uh, that's an excellent question. I know that there are quite a few scholars who do um, practice the religion that they study. And this is a common question that I get from folks in the online Shinto community. I would say, no, I do not practice Shinto, but uh, I'm very sympathetic towards the practice. I think there's a lot of um, good stuff in there. Yeah, okay, good to get that cleared up at the start. So one of our most popular episodes of the first series was on modern Shinto with Dana Masalis, who did a wonderful job explaining how complicated defining Shinto is. Beforehand, I thought you could define Shinto as an indigenous Japanese religion, but Dana gave compelling arguments that it could also be described as being neither indigenous, Japanese, or even a religion. So to set the record for this conversation, I'd like to start off our episode by having you give us your definition of Shinto. This is the million dollar question. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I had the perfect definition of Shinto. I think this is something I'm going to be working on for a long, long time. So if I had to give a short definition, I would say Shinto is a loosely organized Japanese ritual tradition that focuses on the veneration of deities called kami. So you'll notice that in that description, I have neither indigenous uh, nor religion as uh, descriptors, although Japanese is in there because you really can't get away from Shinto's connection to Japan historically culturally. Um, but I'm, I freely admit that I'm avoiding the issue of religion in that statement, not because it doesn't apply, but because I want to emphasize the importance of ritual in uh, Shinto and also highlighting by the absence of religion, whether or not Shinto can be considered to be a religion. And this is still a very controversial topic for debate. Uh, Julian Thomas published his book, Faking Liberties, recently. It's an excellent monograph, and he investigates the idea of the construction of what is religion and what is not religion during what he calls the Meiji constitutional period in uh, the late 1900s and the early 20th century. Jason Josephson Storm also has a great book, The Invention of Religion in Japan, which looks at this issue. So, I don't think we'll ever be able to find an answer to whether or not Shinto is or is not a religion because there are so many different definitions and um, significancies of the qualifier religion. However, trying to tease that out and look at it from all different sides is a really beneficial exercise. It makes us think not only about 
is Shinto a religion and what do we mean by religion? But what are our own personal definitions and kind of motivations behind using the word religion? So I think that it's definitely a useful exercise to consider Shinto within the category of religion and religious studies, because there's a lot of food for thought there. But the descriptor in that conventional statement that Shinto is the indigenous religion of Japan, the descriptor that's most interesting to me is indigeneity, the idea of indigeneity. So what do we mean when we say something is indigenous? What sort of claims are people making? What goals are they advancing by mobilizing this idea? So I've been thinking about the concept of indigeneity quite a bit. It seems to fall into four categories that Shinto can be ethnically indigenous, that only Japanese people ethnically uh, practice Shinto. There's geographical indigeneity, so that Shinto is something that is practiced within the Japanese archipelago and has a special connection to the mountains and the rivers and the ocean connected to Japan. And then there are other forms of indigeneity, I would argue that there's a kind of authoritative indigeneity ascribed to Shinto that only people who are Japanese or grow up in Japan can say what Shinto is and everyone else must just accept that because that is where Shinto comes from. So my project, looking at the globalization of Shinto and the growth of these online communities that are primarily made up of non-Japanese people living outside of Japan helps me to come at the question of indigeneity kind of sideways by taking my point of reference for Shinto from outside of Japan. And so every day people online are wondering, can we practice Shinto as non-Japanese people outside of Japan? And if so, how? And I argue that this conversation that's been ongoing in online Shinto communities for decades is a really good way of thinking through our received definitions of Shinto and constructing maybe a new broader idea of how the idea of Shinto is working in the world and in today's cultural, global community, politics, all of these sorts of important things. Okay, so can you tell me what Shinto looks like online then, outside of the strictly Japanese context? Sure. So I alluded to the fact that Shinto communities have been around for quite a while. I did not realize this when I started my research, but Shinto communities actually online can be traced back to the beginning of the internet as we know it today. So I'm talking about Web 2.0, which is this shift in the internet in the early days, in the late 1990s, in the early 2000s, where we start to see the emergence of a more interactive social networking type of internet. So prior to this point during Web 1.0, the internet was pretty static. You interfaced through the internet with uh, web pages. They were mostly static text. They did not change much. And there wasn't a lot of interactivity. You just posted something for other people to read or you read what other people had wrote. However, at the emergence of Web 2.0 with this new models and platforms for interactivity, people can start having more conversations, posting pictures, sharing links to things, watching live videos. We can do so many things online now that it's hard to remember a time when we couldn't. So that's what I mean by Web 2.0. So in 2000, we can see that online Shinto communities were present, um, which is pretty phenomenal considering that This was an early time when religious communities in general were experimenting with the internet. And so in the year 2000, a Yahoo group mailing list was formed called the Shinto mailing list or the Shinto ML. This is the first documented evidence that I can find people coming together online to talk about Shinto who are invested in Shinto and considering, if not already, practicing Shinto ritual. After about 10 years, around 2010, the group had over a thousand members and tens of thousands of messages shared in between them. At that point, the technical affordances of Facebook started to look really attractive. And what I mean is that in around the year 2010, Facebook added new features and upgraded some old features that made their groups more attractive 
for the different things that you could do on there. It's very easy on Facebook to create a group, manage membership, upload files to be shared with the group, and just all sorts of other ways of interacting together. You can hit the like button. You can leave a heart now. It's the emojis. You can do all sorts of things on Facebook. So at this point in 2010, I saw a migration from uh, Shinto um, practitioners and people generally interested in Shinto from Yahoo to Facebook. It was kind of a slow migration, but today Facebook is really the hub of online Shinto community, but it is a network, which means that Facebook is not the only place where people who practice Shinto gather together online. So the network is comprised of Facebook, other social media platforms like Twitter, Discord, Reddit, um, as well as web pages and blogs, informal you know, uh, group chats, live streams, YouTube channels, all of this kind of forms the web through which people participate in online Shinto communities. It's interesting to note that in 2020, the original Yahoo group was deleted because Yahoo actually deleted all of the groups. Thankfully, I was able to archive all of those messages from the first 10 documented years of online Shinto history. So what does online Shinto community look like today? If you practice Shinto outside of Japan, it can be very difficult if you don't live near a Shinto shrine. Outside of Japan, there are several Shinto shrines. Primarily, they're located in um, hotspots for the Japanese diaspora, like Hawaii and Brazil. However, there are a few in other perhaps unexpected places. So there are a few in the United States. There are two on the West Coast that are very active, Tsubaki Grand Shrine of America and Shinto Shrine of Shusei Nari in America, and uh, one on the East Coast, Kamunami Banyu Ko Shinto Shrine. There's one in Amsterdam, as well as one in the Republic of San Marino on the Italian peninsula. But if you think about people living all over the world, let's say Australia or Poland or New Zealand, you still don't live in the same country as a shrine. Um, and so the practice of Shinto community and Shinto ritual as happening within a shrine and through a Shinto priest is not really feasible for the majority of people interested in practicing Shinto outside of Japan. And so I've noticed that um, global Shinto practitioners have shifted the focus to the domestic or the home altar called a kamidana or a kami shelf. So this is a small miniature shrine um, made out of wood, usually with several doors in which sacred talismans called ofuda are placed that come from specific shrines. And this is kind of the center of worship for the kami, the Shinto deities within the home. So you basically construct a miniature shrine within your home. And this is a lot easier to access than traveling to a Shinto shrine. And so I've seen on online Shinto communities that a lot of the conversation revolves around how to practice at one's kamidana once it's set up and how to set it up in the first place. Again, uh, the resources for putting together a kamidana can be difficult to acquire. Um, the ofuda, the sacred talisman I mentioned, must come from Ishinto shrine. It has to be consecrated there. It kind of acts as an antenna. It's a link back to the home shrine that you set up in your home. So this is a very important component of the kamidana. And not a lot of Shinto shrines in Japan um, are able or willing to send ofuda overseas. And so a lot of the Shinto shrines located outside of Japan um, act as the suppliers of various items and accessories needed for the kamidana, the shell of the miniature shrine itself, as well as the ofuda, as well as offering bowls and vases and that type of thing. Then I see a lot of conversation about what the offerings should be like. There's a question within Shinto communities, understanding that Shinto comes from a very local origin, that there were very specific places within what we now call Japan, where people had their own shrine traditions that grew out of their experience of living on that land in that time. How 
best can we practice Shinto, understanding that background? Do you follow what is now standard practice in Japan, or do you tailor your practice to your own locality? So traditional offerings at the Kamidana include water, salt, sake, evergreen branches, and rice. Rice is the most important one. And so rice is usually easy to acquire. However, as we've seen in the pandemic, with the breakdown of global supply chains, even something as simple as rice can be difficult to acquire. Um, the markup for Japanese rice, for example, could be very high. And so people in their own circumstances tactically change or adapt their practice to their local circumstances. So they might substitute oats for rice. If they don't drink sake or they can't get their hands on it, they might offer a local spirit like bourbon in Kentucky, or they might decide not to offer sake. So then there's a question of what components are the most important to preserve in Shinto practice and what other ones can be adapted as need be. So these are some really interesting conversations that are facilitated between Shinto practitioners all over the world through the internet. In addition to that, there's not just a lot of conversation or discourse happening online. There's also a lot of sharing of digital resources, PDFs of norito, or you could call them prayer formulas that you use during Shinto ritual to speak to the kami, to open and close a ritual sharing of other you know, pieces of news, audio files, frequently asked question files. There's a lot of information shared um, within these communities. And then there's actual practice that takes place online. I've seen an uptick in this during the pandemic because of social distancing restrictions. We see this in religious communities across the board. People are having to deal with their relationship with the internet and religion and whether or not it is um, acceptable or authorized for them or authentic to their understanding of their practice to use the internet to mediate their ritual practice. However, before the COVID-19 pandemic, I, I was aware of one Shinto priest, Reverend Hasegawa Izumi, at Shinto Shrine of Shusei Nari in America, based in Los Angeles. She was live streaming her monthly Tsukinami-sai rituals to her shrine parishioners all over the world. So she started on Instagram and then very shortly before the pandemic, she moved to YouTube. And since the beginning of the pandemic, two years ago, she has been live streaming her Tsukinami-sai ceremonies monthly, as well as annual yearly festivals. Other shrines have also been experimenting with online modes and digital media. For example, Kanda Myojin Shrine in Japan, they actually held a matsuri, a festival, their summer festival in Animal Crossing, which is a popular video game for the Nintendo Switch. So it's a really exciting time to be studying online Shinto. And so some of the takeaways are that it is possible to create religious community online. There is nothing inherently wrong or inauthentic about that, although people can discuss it because people have different ideas. Um, in Japan, particularly in Shrine Shinto, overseen by the uh, Jinja Honsho, the Association for uh, Shinto Shrines, there is a taboo against internet-mediated ritual called Interneto Sampai. So there's a taboo against worshiping online. However, some of, not everybody agrees with this taboo, and there has been discussion about whether that's feasible during the pandemic, if it holds Shito Shrines back, if using more internet-based practices, even just receiving emails and sort of prayer requests from parishioners would be acceptable in the short term or in the long term. Another takeaway is that Shinto communities have been online for a long time. This is not actually a new phenomenon. They've been present since the beginning of the internet. It's hard to find evidence of them prior to that, but we do have evidence of the archive. And thirdly, online communities continue to change, and so do digital technologies. So 
one day it, the community may be one way and then next year it will be completely different, which makes online communities really dynamic. I think that today we're starting to see a migration from Facebook to Discord servers, although this may also take a period of perhaps a decade like it did from Yahoo to Facebook. And as these communities shift between different platforms, these platforms also have an influence on what the online communities are able to do, how they practice, how they interact with each other. And so I think it's important not just to look at how people are using technology, but how technology impacts the way people do religion. So you think that comprehensive answer. Can I ask, as a long-time lurker of these online Shinto communities, do you have a sense of the kind of people populating in these online spaces? Do they have family connections to Japan or not? Or what, what kind of common factors are there? That's a great question. So uh, it's difficult to have some of that information because I do not have access to the backend logs for online Shinto communities. There is a lot of demographic data that is just hidden away and only available to either moderators of the group or the owners of Facebook, which may be a little concerning in and of itself. But in 2019, I conducted a survey of 50 active members. These communities today range somewhere between six to 10 to 12,000 people. However, if as anybody who's been in an online group knows, not everybody who is in a group is necessarily active all the time. You know, people have their own circumstances. They may work, they may participate actively. But of the people who responded to my survey, 70% or so said that they live in the United States. 20% said that they live in Europe, mostly the UK, but really all around Europe. And then the other 10% came from all over the world. So demographically, right now, the online community in terms of active membership seems to be predominantly Western and North American and European. In addition to that, the gender balance of the groups seems pretty equal at this point. And ages really do run the gamut. In terms of religious background, the majority of survey respondents reported that their family was at least nominally Christian, although there was a good number of people who come from Buddhist or atheist and non-religious backgrounds. Um, let's see. In terms of ethnicity, the majority of people who responded to the survey identified as white or Caucasian. However, there is also a good number of people who are Japanese, Japanese-American, members of the Japanese diaspora living in other parts of the world, like Brazil, as well as a good number of people who married into Japanese families and so became interested in Shinto and started to practice Shinto ritual due to those family connections. So it's a really diverse community, but if you had to pull out a couple of features, then your average Shinto practitioner is a white American non-Japanese person whose family is nominally Christian and they are interested in Shinto and perhaps other non-Christian religions. Wow, that's fascinating. How do you explain that? I think there are a number of reasons why Shinto is interesting and appealing attractive to people more so than others. So if you consider that people are seeking perhaps a religious tradition, a religious or spiritual home, as someone in the Shinto community has explained it to me, there are definitely a number of options to choose from. So then the question is why Shinto and perhaps not something else like modern paganism, for example, although there are a good number of Shinto pagans as well. And I think that this comes from a few factors that kind of tip the balance towards Shinto as opposed to other traditions. So first is that Shinto aligns with interested people's values, particularly a, a positive, affirmative outlook on this worldly life that we're living now, rather than trying to dispel the illusions of this world or have a good afterlife. It's really rooted in what is my life like right now and how can I live that life the best way that I can. There's also a consideration within the online Shinto community that 
Shinto is an environmentally friendly religion and that they are very interested and have ecological concerns that they feel Shinto resonates with and helps them to live in harmony with nature in a way that other traditions do not. There's also an interest in ritual. I recently published an article in the conversation called Japan's Shinto religion is going global and attracting online followers, in which I interviewed um, a leader in the Shinto community. Her name is Kit Cox. She is a uh, Inari Okami devotee. She venerates the kami called Inari. And she mentioned to me that ritual is really important for her. That's one of the things that drew her to Shinto. She felt that that was not present in her life. And a lot of people have realized, especially during the chaos of the pandemic, that ritual really helps to ground and center us. It provides a structure for our daily life, our experience of time over the span of our lives. And it gives us a sense of control and participation in the divine or participation in other forces that are important to us that we need connection with. So quite a few people in the online Shinto community really appreciate the ritual focus of Shinto and really lean into that. The third factor that I think is most important is an interest in Japanese culture more broadly. I think that this is really what tips the scale because if we consider, for example, Wicca or another form of Western paganism, ritual is present. And it also has a generally positive outlook on this worldly life. It gives people tools for living in this world as best as they want to. But there is definitely an interest in Japanese culture more broadly within the online Shinto community, particularly popular culture. As I mentioned, um, I grew up watching anime. I know that the Inari devotee I just spoke of, Kit, she also has an interest in anime Many people in the online Shito community share this interest and do actually talk about which anime they appreciate and why and how it helps them to learn more about Shinto in online forums. But there's also a good number of people within the online community who practice Japanese martial arts, particularly Aikido. There are people who practice tea ceremony, saddle, and calligraphy, shodo. So there are any number of routes to appreciating Japanese culture. And I find that people within the community find Shinto to be a way to more deeply engage with Japanese culture. Great. So you mentioned that some people become interested in Shinto through popular culture like anime and video games. What, what is it about the iconography of Shinto that captures the imagination of so many outside of Japan? That's a really excellent question. First and foremost, I think that depictions and themes relating to nature leave a deep impression on people within the online Shinto community at a formative point in their spiritual journeys. I can relate to this as well, even though I'm not a Shinto practitioner. But if you've ever seen uh, some Studio Ghibli films such as Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, My Neighbor Totoro, the depictions of the environment are just so gorgeous they're they're lush they're green you can even feel a sense of awe just you know looking at this image on your screen of a great shinboku or a sacred tree for example the giant camphor tree in my neighbor totoro where the the spirit totoro lives it has a deep impact on people that they can't exactly articulate but they find fascinating they want to learn more about that especially if they lean towards environmental concerns and this idea of green religion. So the first thing is nature. The second iconography that I think captures people's imagination is tori gates. So tori are these large, often red, but they don't have to be arched gateways that you'll often see at the entrance and within shrine precincts. They demarcate sacred space. So as you pass through under the Tori gate, you are entering or exiting a particularly sacred and purified space in which the kami 
inhabit. So you can see these tori gates in many anime and manga, Japanese cartoons, or video games even. They don't even have to be related to the plot of the story for people to really have those tori grab their attention. One of the examples I'm thinking of is the Washinomiya Shrine that appears in the anime Lucky Star. There is a very brief opening song where one of the main characters is walking down the street and a tori gate is in the background. Suddenly, people became very, very interested in this one tori that is just in the background of this anime. And fans went and they found that tori gate in real life because Washinomiya Shrine in the show is actually based on a real shrine, Takanomiya Shrine, in Japan. And then people started going to visit that particular tori gate. One of the most popular images of Shinto that shows up in non-Japanese media are the thousand tori gates of the Fushimi Inari Taisha, the grand shrine of Fushimi Inari in Kyoto. If you've ever seen it, it's this long tunnel of red tori. It's kind of anywhere you look, you find that image. So tori gates have become kind of a, a touchstone, a symbol of not only Shinto, but Japanese culture more broadly, that when people see it, they immediately think, okay, that's, that is something Shinto. It grabs my attention. I want to know more about it. It's kind of funny that if you are trying to input an emoji on your phone, uh, I often find this on Twitter. If you're searching for the Tori Gate emoji, it's not actually under Tori, it's under Shinto. <laughs> so you have to write Shinto in order to input the Tori Gate symbol in digital media. So I think that Tori Gates are definitely a factor. In fact, there are several anime conventions that erect their own Tori Gates or even have them as part of their logos. So the Tori Gate in some shape has become a signifier for Shinto. A third thing that I think captures the imagination of people outside of Japan with reference to popular culture are shrine maidens, Miko. And generally, magical powers that appear in many anime. This is a popular trope that people living in a world maybe very close to or different than ours have these magical powers that may come from uh, the kami or another source of spiritual power. Shrine maidens are very recognizable by their white and bright red clothing. And they're often main characters or side characters in anime and have some sort of connection to magical power. People have become very fascinated in this shrine maiden character, even to the point of fetishization. But I think people are really interested in this idea that people can interface directly with the kami and gain some sort of spiritual power from that and engage in ritual practice. So I think that those are some of the factors that just spark an interest in what, what is that? Where does that come from in Japanese culture? I want to learn more. And then that is the gateway, like a tori gate, to learning more about Shinto and then becoming more invested in uh, practicing it. Mm. Fascinating. And from sparking interest, we'll go to sparking joy now. So one of the most popular purveyors of Shinto in recent years is Marie Kondo, who you wrote about in your 2021 article, The Untidiness of Marie Kondo's Eclectic Spirituality. For those who don't know, Kondo started on Netflix as an international expert on tidying up, referencing Shinto and other spiritual elements in her rhetoric. Now, my mum thought I was being a bit of a snobby academic when I told her that Kondo's methods with Shinto were dubious, so I'm hoping you'll vindicate me here by sharing with us how you think Kondo uses Shinto and whether that helps or harms global understanding of Shinto. Yes, one of my favorite topics, <laughs> Kondo Marie or Marie Kondo. I, I will eventually vindicate you. However, <laughs> I'm going to start with what is related to Shinto with Marie Kondo that people are picking up on? Because although I would argue that Marie Kondo is not particularly Shinto, this is not to say that she doesn't reference Shinto because she does. And people pick up on that. So uh, what are some of these things? Well, first of all, she worked as a shrine maiden 
at a Shinto shrine during high school. She had worked as a shrine maiden for five years. So she mentions in, you know, in the press that this had a deep impact on her. And she tries to approach tidying with the same kind of reverence and joy and awe that she felt working as a shrine maiden at a shrine. I will note that working as a shrine maiden is a very popular kind of side job for high school girls. So it's not extraordinary that she worked as a shrine maiden. Many people have and don't go on to be magical tidying gurus. Um, She also talks about Kamidana in her first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering, I think is the full title. It's quite a mouthful. But in her first book on tidying up, there is a section on kamidana or kami shelves, these Shinto home altars. I would attribute this to the fact that she originally wrote that first book for a Japanese audience. And so there was a real practical concern for people of how to tidy around the kamidana if you have one for your ancestors and for your tutelary deities, the kami of your area and your birthplace. This is just something that people would have asked her and probably did during her in-person consulting. How do I handle organizing this part of my home? So that is connected to Shinto. And then finally, she references ritual practices that are at least influenced by Shinto. So, for example, one of the most well-recognized rituals of hers is that when she enters a home, she, quote unquote, greets the spirit of the home. So this is kind of a callback to the practice of aisatsu or greeting the kami at a home altar or at a Shinto shrine where you bow, you clap, and then you bow again. (laughs) She does not follow that particular protocol. She has made up her own way of greeting the spirit of the house, but she attributes this to some inspiration from Shinto. And finally, she also references purification to a certain extent particularly on her website. She has a whole section on her website dedicated to rituals. There's one in particular that I'm fascinated with where she says eight rituals for kind of cleaning up your space. And she references Shinto rituals for purification called Harai, but she actually doesn't recommend that her followers or her clients practice Harai. Instead, she mentions things like burning palo santo wood, smudging using sage, using tuning forks and crystals. And so you can see that I'm segueing away from Shinto because for anybody who's not very familiar with Shinto, palo santo wood, which is a holy wood from South America, and crystals and tuning forks are not part of traditional Shinto practice. People who perform Shinto rituals may be interested in them, but it's not really included under the umbrella of Shinto. So I would argue that Marie Kondo is not just a scion of Shinto or a Shinto tidying consultant. Rather, I see her as what uh, Ioannis Gaitanides calls a spiritual professional, somebody who offers a variety of practices or approaches to fit their clients' needs and preferences. So I think it's more accurate to say that Shinto is just one part of her eclectic mix, which also includes things like Palo Santo wood, tuning forks and crystals, and lots of other sorts of implements that she pulls from various world religious and spiritual traditions. So there's always something to catch people's attention about Marie Kondo. It could be Shinto for uh, a lot of people and Some people in the online Shinto community, that's what it is. That's what catches their attention and resonates with them, sparks joy for them, if you will. But for other people, it's not Shinto. It's it's the tuning forks and the crystals. It's, you know, other ritual forms, sage and smudging, for example, from Native American practices. There's always something that can draw you into Kondo's kind of spiritual mix. And uh, I think that's a really shrewd marketing strategy on her part. Thank you. I feel much more reassured there. (laughs) (laughs) So um, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask about your experience as a Japan-oriented researcher around the ongoing travel ban to Japan. Back in December 2021, you announced that after two years of waiting to start a Japan Foundation fellowship, you withdrew your placement. 
Given Japan's strict response to pandemic travel, many other researchers in your position have empathised, but could you explain why you made this choice and what impact these recurring travel bans will have on Japanese studies as a field in the long term? Yes, this is a very difficult but important topic to talk about at the moment. It was a very difficult decision. I held on as long as possible. So for those who maybe are outside of academia, the PhD timeline and funding systems within academia are very strict, particularly in fields that require you to spend time in the field abroad. So the ideal timeline is that after you take your exams in your third or your fourth year of your PhD, specifically in Japanese studies or in any kind of religious studies that requires you to go abroad, you will go abroad for a year or more to kind of cut your teeth, hone your skills, make connections, work on your language ability, all of that. And then after your year or two or more, you will then return back to your institution and finish your dissertation. So I, I followed this path very strictly. I finished my exams. I received two fellowships. I was very fortunate from the Social Science Research Council International Dissertation Research Fellowship and then from the Japan Foundation. So going into, let's say, February 2020, I had accomplished kind of everything up to that point that you should have. And then the pandemic hit and the Japanese border closed. And so then we needed to wait. And we waited and we waited and we waited and months turned into almost two years and the, the border is still closed to researchers and students and professional workers and people whose family live in Japan. When you go abroad, you kind of hit pause on your institutional support. So while I was waiting to get into Japan, I was ineligible for university housing. I had no steady income, no health care. I was really cut off. All of my financial support was supposed to come from my fellowship, the Japan Foundation Fellowship, which I could not receive unless I was physically located in Japan. So waiting in limbo for two years with you know absolutely no resources, I moved back in with my parents at the age of 26, was really, really hard on my mental, my physical, my financial well-being. It got to the point where I just I couldn't wait anymore. So I decided to withdraw from the program. I estimate that conservatively, I lost $50,000 uh, USD waiting to get into Japan. And that's just money that I, I don't have. And my timeline is you know still ticking away while the border is closed. So I have decided I will return to my university this coming summer. I'm going to teach a class on Japanese popular culture. I will be very happy to have my income and my housing and my healthcare back. And I will just have to finish my research and my dissertation as I can. So the impact of the travel ban on researchers like me is definitely going to affect the field in the long term. There's a whole generation of Japanese studies scholars who are unable to travel to Japan. And I'm not sure how that's going to affect us on the job market. The job market is already incredibly competitive and tense. There are so few positions. And there are you know, many cohorts of scholars ahead of me who were able to go and study in Japan and make connections, who are going up for the same jobs. So uh, the competition seems even steeper now that I don't have that experience on my CV, let's say. So there's a whole generation of, of scholars and also professors, early career scholars who are unable to have this experience in Japan to access the field, to access archives that they really need for their studies. So right now we're seeing a turn uh, away from Japan, Japanese studies only because of practicality. We are so invested in pursuing this field, but because we just we can't get into Japan to conduct our research as we need to, people are finding other avenues of study pivoting to archives in Taiwan, for example, or South Korea. So I think that Japan has spent such a long time trying to 
boost its uh, international reputation and to welcome scholars and to encourage them to make Japan a, you know, a hot topic, a really, you know, important player on the international stage in both research and politics. And a lot of this, you know, funding and resourcing and planning um, and collaboration is just stopped dead. And I don't know if we'll, we'll be able to recover, but we are all just doing our best. Um, in Asia Pacific Perspectives, the journal, I published an article demystifying remote research in anthropology and area studies. Although I have not been able to get into Japan, I am a great proponent of the ability of scholars to conduct remote research, to conduct digital research, and that that research is also you know, important and significant and valid and worthy of resources and appreciation. So if anybody is struggling with their own studies due to travel bans and is feeling perhaps insecure or lost with conducting remote or digital research as you pivot away, um, I would recommend them to check out that article and at least know that you're not alone and we can do good work regardless. Yeah, we're definitely all in the same boat there, I think. So thank you for answering my questions, Caitlin, and it's been a real joy. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects are currently working on? Sure. So I have a great commitment to public scholarship. Japanese studies tends to be siloed within the academy, but as we've discussed, so many people are interested in Japan. So I'm working to open up the ability to learn more about Japan through quality research in a number of ways. Uh, the first is my YouTube channel called Eat, Pray, Anime. It is kind of a half educational, half entertaining YouTube channel where I discuss Japanese religious culture and history through Japanese media, through anime and manga and video games. My most recent video is about um, Shinto cosmologies and the sea the underwater land of Tokoyo, as seen in the um, online multiplayer game Genshin Impact. I'm also working on a uh, collaborative project called Gaming Plus, where we um, provide public resources for studying video games interdisciplinarily. So for updates on all of these projects that I'm involved in, you can follow me on Twitter at Caitlin Ugretz. Or you can check out my website, www.ugoretzresearch.org. Uh, my last name is spelled U-G-O-R-E-T-Z, research.org. Excellent. Thank you, Caitlin. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to Caitlin's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnarch.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Koto Satomura. Robert and Lisa Sainsbury Research Fellow at the Sainsbury Institute to discuss the place of humour in art through the works of the eccentric 19th century painter Kawanabe Kyosai and how it's valued against traditional subjects. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>